please stand now for the reading of God's Word. From Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then, being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Thus far, the reading of God's Word and all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. So as I begin, a little explanation is in order. If you're scratching your head thinking, isn't this the same passage that Pastor Booth preached from last week? Well, you would be correct. I had my own personal epiphany enlightenment moment Thursday night when I told Nathan Ketchin that I was preaching on the Magi today. He proceeded to tell me that Pastor Booth preached on the Magi last Sunday and that it was a good sermon. I've been out of town for a couple weeks and wasn't paying attention. Well, this will be awkward, I replied. If your bucket list has an item listed, heard two sermons in a row at the same church on the same passage of Scripture, you can check that off today. It won't be the same sermon, so it won't be that awkward. I'm sure there will be some overlap and maybe some differences, but perhaps with a separate emphasis. These verses are overflowing with details that tie centuries and millennia of the story of the salvation of the world together. There's a lot to look at and many lessons we can learn, and we'll look at a few of those today. The Gospel of Matthew was written to Jewish Christians, and many elements of Jesus' life follow the history of Israel. It begins with Jesus' genealogy that traces his heritage back through King David to Abraham the patriarch. David's presence points us to Jesus' royal lineage And Abraham reminds us that Israel will be a blessing to the world, to the Gentiles. Even Jesus' most recent kin point us to the patriarchs. His grandfather was Jacob, or Israel, and his earthly father was Joseph. Two prominent names in the history of Israel. The connections with Israel's past intensify as we move through Matthew chapter 2. Jesus is born in Bethlehem, the house of bread. Bethlehem was the town where Rachel died where the Levite's concubine was left to be raped and murdered. It was the town that Naomi's husband left during the famine and went to Moab looking for food. It's where Naomi returned with Ruth after they were both widowed and where Ruth 
met and married Boaz, the grandfather to David. It brings to mind several prominent cases of death and curses with the glimmer of hope. Some estimates claim Bethlehem's population was a thousand, but possibly as low as a couple hundred. We're also introduced here to Herod, the king in Jerusalem. Jerusalem means possession of peace. It was previously called Salem, where Melchizedek was high priest, and to whom Abraham paid homage. Its population was 40 to 80,000 in Jesus' day and was the political and religious center for the Jews. Herod is known as Herod the Great and ruled between 37 B.C. and 4 B.C. He was a shrewd and cunning politician who executed potential threats to his kingdom and was loyal to the Roman emperor Octavian. He had up to 2,000 soldiers in his guard. He was a wannabe Jew of sorts, who encouraged synagogue growth and oversaw the rebuilding of Solomon's temple to be even more extravagant than when Solomon himself built it. He was a descendant of Edom, Esau, whose family converted to Judaism. He was circumcised. And we have the contrast set up again of the family of Jacob opposed to the family of Esau. Herod was the king of the Jews. And that's why the Magi came to Herod in Jerusalem. If you want to know where the new king is born, it only makes sense that you ask the present king. If there was a new king born, it would be from his family, right? Of all people, he should know any and all royal developments in his land. Consider the Magi. I don't think they were kings, but it's not hard to imagine that they came from a king's court and certainly brought kingly gifts. It's not likely that they crossed a desert with those kinds of gifts without some type of entourage accompanied by guards and many supplies. Maybe Herod was intimidated by the show that they made when they rode into town looking for the new king. The Magi may or may not have recognized the significance of their request, but it really was a subversive question. You can imagine the scene. The extravagantly dressed company of travelers gets an audience with Herod, the king of the Jews, and their question is, where is the new king? We've come to worship him. But of course, Herod didn't know. He was out of the loop about a royal heir, and it bothered him and all Jerusalem greatly. They were troubled, Matthew says. They were troubled like Zacharias was when he saw the angel announcing John the Baptist's birth, and troubled and troubled like when the disciples thought Jesus was a ghost walking on the water. It's the same word used when the angel would stir or trouble the water in the pool in John 5 so that the lame and diseased would enter to be healed. The people of Jerusalem were stirred up. They were stirred up for several reasons. For one, they, the political and religious elite, were in the dark about this supposed royal birth. If anyone should have known, they would have known, and they were caught off guard. Second, the Magi may well have asked King Herod if he could give them directions to the king of the rebels. We have a bunch of treasures we want to give him, and we want to worship him, not you, by the way. The third reason has a little bit more to unpack. The Magi are mentioned in at least two other places in the Bible. It's the same name used for Pharaoh's magicians who were there with Moses in Egypt when Moses asked Pharaoh to let the Hebrews go. And it's also the name for Nebuchadnezzar's magicians, astrologers, sorcerers, and Chaldeans who were, in, who were instructed on pain of death to interpret his troubling dream. Daniel alone was able 
to interpret the dreams for him in chapter, Daniel chapter 2 and 5. The Greek Old Testament in Daniel 4 and 5 has the same word to describe King Nebuchadnezzar who was troubled by his second dream and also troubled by the hand that appeared writing on the wall at his feast. Because the Magi were from the east, it's possible that they were from Babylon and were spiritual heirs of Daniel, just like the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 5 may be a convert from the days of the Queen of Sheba when she returned from surveying all of Solomon's glory. We talked about, Lance talked about this a little bit in Sunday school, about the, the Hebrews in exile and the, the possibilities there. But the connections with the story of Israel don't stop there. Around the time of Daniel's, Babylon, Daniel's captivity in Babylon, Ezekiel saw in his vision the glory of Yahweh and fell on the ground in Ezekiel chapter 1. This was the same glory that led Israel by the cloud through the wilderness that was described as a consuming fire and what Moses asked to see in Exodus 33. And it was the same glory that came and filled the tabernacle upon its completion and dedication. It was the visible presence of Yahweh with his people. After centuries of covenant lawlessness and abominations by the children of Israel, Yahweh is stirring. Ezekiel sees the glory go up from the cherubim where it had been to the threshold of the temple. Then it filled the courtyard. Then the glory of Yahweh left the temple and stood on the mountain, which was the Mount of Olives, on the east side of the city of Jerusalem in Ezekiel 11. The children of Judah would follow the glory of the Lord into exile when they were taken to Babylon. Later in Ezekiel's vision, in chapter 43, the glory of Yahweh returns to the temple in judgment. But when the actual temple is rebuilt by Herod, there is no visible, physical manifestation of the glory of the Lord filling the temple like there was with Moses and Solomon when the temple was built in their day. In Matthew 17, Jesus is transfigured in front of Peter, James, and John, when Moses and Elijah appear with him on the Mount of Olives, and the glory cloud, the Shekinah glory of Yahweh, returns. But in Matthew 2, the glory returns from the east in a different way, a foreshadowing of the engrafting of the Gentiles into the kingdom of God, and the return, uh, and the return of Yahweh's glory in judgment. The figurative nations are coming to Jesus, bearing gifts to worship him. Tragically, the chief priests and scribes do not join in the search with the Magi for the newborn king. Surely they knew what to expect from King Herod after this unexpected news. He had killed political opponents before, and he would most definitely kill again. This would not be the only time the chief priests and religious rulers in Israel would betray Jesus to their pagan king. They knew the prophecies regarding the Savior who would be born in Bethlehem, but it was only words for them. Their collective unbelief would continue to harden their hearts for more than 30 years when they were exposed as enemies of the king. They may have heard Herod tell the Magi that he wanted to worship the new king when they found him, but they weren't surprised in the least when the Magi deceived Herod, didn't return to him, and Herod was exceedingly angry, just like Yahweh was exceedingly angry with Israel on so many occasions when they disobeyed and broke covenant with him. The Magi continued on their search, either oblivious to the danger they or baby Jesus faced, or content and determined in their mission that the consequences didn't matter for them. They followed the star until it stopped over the house where Mary and Jesus were, and they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. They brought glad, believing, worshiping tidings, 
Hail, King of the Jews. These were different tidings and a different sort that the unbelieving, mocking Roman soldiers brought for Jesus when he was crucified. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. He was crowned by them, but with thorns, not gold. He was robed in scarlet, only for it to be torn from him and divided for spoils. He was given wine, the drink of kings, but it was sour. Interestingly, the chief priests again point out, after Jesus is crucified, the prophecy about his promised resurrection. They told Pilate that Jesus said he would rise again from the dead in three days. They persisted in betraying Jesus, even in his death. Then there's the question about the timing of the Magi's visit. I suggest that the chronology of their visit, their escape to Egypt and return after Herod's death, mentioned in the following verses, is much more compressed than the common view. I think the Magi may have visited and worshipped Jesus, perhaps with the shepherds, shortly after Jesus was born, at least before the twelfth night, because that's how long we have to leave our Christmas lights up to show the Magi the way, right? And it makes our nativity scenes look better with them in it. If you get to see the nativity scene at our house, you'll see that there may have been an armadillo, a chicken, a turtle, all sorts of interesting creatures there at the same time with noises to go along and accompany them. (laughs) This shorter time frame has the shepherds and the magi coming to visit Jesus soon after his birth, his circumcision, escape to Egypt, when Herod ordered the killing of all the male children in Bethlehem under two years old, Herod's death, Mary and Joseph and Jesus' return from Jerusalem before he was presented to Simeon and Anna in the temple. Josephus indicated that Herod died in 4 B.C. And this fits with other scenarios that have Jesus' birth around that time. This, of course, isn't spelled out in our passage before us today, but it does give us one possibility of how it may have happened. So those are some of the details surrounding the visit of the Magi to baby Jesus. They had great consequences for the Jews of Jesus' day and put in motion the great expansion of the gospel we have seen recently in the book of Acts and is of no less importance to us today. As you know, Jesus' birth fulfilled a multitude of prophecies from the Old Covenant. Listen to this one example from Isaiah chapter 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of Yahweh is risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth and the deep darkness the people. But Yahweh will arise over you and His glory will be seen upon you. The Gentiles shall come to see your light and the kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all together, they come to you. Your sons shall come from afar and your daughters shall be nursed at your side. Then you shall see and become radiant and your heart shall swell with joy. Because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you, the wealth of the Gentiles shall come to you. The multitude of camels shall cover your land, the dromedaries of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and incense, and they shall proclaim the praises of Yahweh. All the flock of Kadar shall be gathered together to you. The rams of Nebioth shall minister to you. And they shall ascend with acceptance on my altar, and I will glorify the house of my glory." Who are these who fly like a cloud and like doves to their roosts? Surely the coastlands shall wait for me, and the ships of Tarshish will come first to bring your sons from afar, their silver and the gold with them, to the name of Yahweh your God, 
and to the Holy One of Israel because He has glorified you. The Gentiles shall come to your light. The Magi and the shepherds, as we are told in Luke, were led by the light to the light. Jesus was the light that came into the world to dispel the darkness. Whatever the light was that the Magi saw, it was revealed to them by God that the light was there to be followed and that it would lead them to a newborn king who was worthy of their worship. The promise to Abraham had glimpses of being fulfilled at different times in the Old Covenant. Yahweh promised in Genesis 12 to make him a great nation, to make his name great, blessing those who bless him and cursing those who curse him, blessing all the families of the earth through him. He traveled through the land promised to him, setting up altars. We have stories of various Gentiles converting and joining the covenant people. Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, Rahab the prostitute, Naomi and Ruth, the queen of Sheba. With the Gospels, we see the fulfillment of this promise from almost 2,000 years earlier, ramping up. It's similar to when you see someone who appears to be an overnight success but has put thousands of hours of blood, sweat, and tears into their craft or their business. It had been a thousand years or so since foreign dignitaries came to pay homage to a Jewish king, and this was a very big deal. It's still a big deal to come and worship the king. It certainly doesn't look like the gifts and the worship the Magi brought, but it is no less important. We are here to worship the king. You make preparations to worship the king. You bring your bodies to worship the king. You bring gifts to the king. And since the king is no longer a baby, you listen to what he has to say. You eat with the king. The king sends you out, commissioned once again to do his bidding. And we do it all with joyful and glad hearts because he rescued us from sin and death. We were slaves to sin and we have been redeemed, bought with the price and set free to obey and worship him. The idea that a baby will grow to inherit a throne is really foreign to us today. We're so used to the idea of voting for presidents and governors and other officials that we have to stop and reorient ourselves. Jesus, of course, knew who he was and what he would do even as a little baby. But other infant heirs to earthly thrones have no idea what their destiny is. It's the same with our children, isn't it? We've had a couple of babies born in the last month or so, and they have been baptized, claimed by Christ. We may bring them gifts, but we don't worship them like the Magi did. We do, however, present them to the king as royal heirs with Jesus. Paul told us in Romans 8 that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. This is not a wind-up-and-let-it-go proposition. We are raising kings and queens who will, by God's grace, mature and grow so that they will give counsel to the high king. But it will take time, teaching, and tears. Make that mental shift with me for a moment. If you knew, beyond a shadow of a doubt, with word from on high, that you were raising a future king or queen, what difference would that make in your family? How would you spend your time at work or at home? What would you watch, listen to, and read with them? Would you cultivate more laughter and celebration? Would you develop a more long-term, multi-generational perspective? We use a French Reformed liturgy in our baptisms, and it's very good. It reminds us what Yahweh has done for that particular child 
though the child has absolutely no idea about the significance of what is happening to him. We talk about Jesus' fighting, suffering, dying, rising from the dead, and ascending into heaven to intercede on his behalf. And how gloriously true that is. But maybe we should add to it to remind us that we are raising kings and queens in the kingdom. Maybe we could say something like this. For you, little child, he has made you an heir together with Christ, that you may grow and join the multitude of heavenly counselors and do battle with the principalities and powers of this world and confound the evil rulers of this age. I like the sound of that. You are kings and queens in the kingdom of God. Live accordingly. The Magi were following a star, but why didn't Herod, the chief priest, and the scribes see it? The same reason Balaam's donkey saw the angel of Yahweh, but Balaam didn't. The same reason Elisha's servant didn't see the army of Yahweh accompanying them until his eyes were opened. The same reason Saul's companions on the road to Damascus didn't see the light that blinded him. The same reason you're a believer and your neighbor isn't. It's the grace of God. Some vessels are created for honor and some for dishonor. Jesus called his disciples to follow him, but the chief priests, scribes, and Pharisees were hardened in their opposition to him. They didn't see the light. Herod was troubled by the possibility of a rival king as we've looked at. He recognized immediately that he had a problem on his hands. I'm the king and what in the world is this caravan doing coming from hundreds of miles away to worship this baby king I haven't even heard of? We're not going to look at this in depth today, but the result of the Magi's question was death to innocent baby boys in Jerusalem. It was an act of war. Sometimes the battle lines are clearer than others. When the tyrant king is taking your baby sons and killing them because he's afraid one of them may be, coming, may be the coming savior of the Jews, the lines are crystal clear. There have been times in the past when we have had rulers who were more sympathetic to the mission of the church, and we're thankful to have some of those locally in our day. But the lines are abundantly clear in other places around the country and in Canada who are trying to restrict the proclamation of the gospel. And there are, of course, evil rulers in other countries who have been actively and physically persecuting Christians for centuries. Page one of the gospel story shows the gospel enemies attempt to shut down the good news. It also shows the Magi's disobedience to Herod. They were given a direct order to report back to Herod after finding the child king, but they were warned in a dream not to return to Herod. This wasn't a gospel issue, or was it? They weren't told not to preach about Jesus like Peter and the apostles were that resulted in being put to jail. Maybe since they were divinely warned that they that gave them an out not to obey Romans 17, if it had been written. But what if they weren't warned in a dream, but by a man on horseback warning that Herod was going to kill all baby boys in Bethlehem and that they should find another route home? Would it still have been lawful, even a righteous act, to avoid Herod then? There's no indication that he wanted to harm the Magi. But King Jesus has given us general principles for obeying evil rulers, but there are times when righteous deception and disobedience are allowed for, demanded, and praised. War requires deception. Listen to the words from this German Epiphany hymn written in 1533, when Christ appearing was made known. 
When Christ appearing was made known, King Herod trembled for his throne. But he who offers heavenly birth sought not the kingdom of this earth. The eastern sages saw from afar and followed on his guiding star. By light their way to light they trod, and by their gifts confessed their God. Within the Jordan's sacred flood, the heavenly Lamb in meekness stood, that he to whom no sin was known might cleanse his people from their own. And oh, what miracle divine when water reddened into wine. He spake the word and forth it flowed in stream that nature never bestowed. All glory, Jesus, be to thee for this thy glad epiphany, whom with the Father we adore and Holy Ghost evermore. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We have seen the light of the world and we have come and worshipped Him today. The glory has returned from exile and the nations are being gathered to Him as His rightful inheritance. You are part of that inheritance. Jesus came and died for us, but He also came and died for you. He has placed His name on you and invited you to sit at His table and to take counsel with His kingly court. Come and eat with the King. Thank you, Father, for meeting with us again today. Send us out again refreshed and eager to serve the King this week. Bless us as we go and bless this food and feast together with each other. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive now His benediction. May the, glory, may the God of all grace who called us to His eternal glory by Christ Jesus after you have suffered for a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To Him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen.